Today we are discussing the paper by Carter et al. Regular walking breaks prevent the decline in cerebral blood flow associated with prolonged sitting that was recently published in the Journal of Applied Physiology. We have Dr. Carter representing the authors and Dr. Sandra Billinger as an external expert, both taking part. My name is Dr. Sandra Billinger and I am an associate professor at the University of Kansas Medical Center. I am Dr. Sophie Carter. I complete my PhD at Liverpool John Moores University in the United Kingdom. I'm now a senior lecturer at York St. John University, also in the UK. My name is John Tifo, and I'm an associate editor for Journal of Applied Physiology, and I handle the peer review. I will moderate this discussion. Dr. Carter, please briefly tell us what was the hypothesis being tested in this paper, how you went about testing the hypothesis, and what you found that was not previously known. So in this study, we hypothesized that prolonged sitting would impair cerebrovascular blood flow and function, but this would be attenuated with light intensity physical activity breaks. Participants completed three different conditions. On one occasion, they sat continuously for four hours. On the other occasions, they either broke up this sitting by completing a two-minute walking break every half an hour or an eight-minute walking break every two hours. And we measured participants' cerebral blood flow and cerebrovascular function immediately before and after each condition. We observed an acute reduction in cerebral blood flow following four hours of sitting. However, when this sitting time was interrupted with the short duration regular walking breaks, this prevented this decline in blood flow, but the less frequent longer duration walking breaks failed to prevent this decrease in brain blood flow. Thank you, Dr. Carter. That was a nice overview. Dr. Billinger, you are an expert in the field and have recently published some work related to this area. What is your take on this paper? Given the global interest in reducing sedentary behavior, I think these findings highlight the importance of minimizing sedentary time and suggest potential implications for brain health. Considering what was already known for peripheral vascular health, I like that the authors designed the study around these frequent and shorter breaks. I think this is important, and it was highlighted in the paper, that individuals whose work is sitting at a desk, they would be able to to implement shorter breaks in their workday. But I also like that the authors tested a longer duration and less often break in sedentary behavior, especially since this was currently an unknown related to brain health. I was surprised by the one-minute collection of MCAV, as I typically have observed a minimum of five minutes, especially for cerebral autoregulation. Can you explain your rationale and thoughts on this? I appreciate in this, like other literature, five minutes has been typically recorded for. So we did have a five-minute rest, but we only collected the data for the last minute just so we could get the snapshot of that response, particularly if it was immediately prior to, for example, during each condition when they then got up and did their walking break. So we could really compare for how it was at that moment in time prior to the then the intervention we assessed. Do you have any other questions, Dr. Billinger? There can be discussion for and against using a self-selected walking speed for the intervention. I wonder, Dr. Carter, if you could comment on how you arrived at this and perhaps the pros and cons of using self-selected walking speed versus using a prescribed heart rate range? The self-selected speed we used in our study was based on sort of the real-world uh, application of it in the sense that if uh, we had workers taking these breaks, they would do it at a self-selected speed that was habitual to their normal walking speed. So participants were instructed when they were familiarised on the treadmill to walk at the speed they would do so normally if they were just, say, walking down the corridor. And the benefits are that and that is applicable into the real world and that if we applied this now into a workplace, that is what the individuals would do. 
the drawbacks of course obviously that the intensities may have differed slightly in terms of say that the percentage of their heart rate so we can't determine from our study if there is an optimal intensity at which you need to walk at in order to elicit this response. Yeah I agree with that and I appreciate your responses. I think the translation to real world is nicely supported by what you highlighted here but I think the unknown too is you know do people need to walk at a certain intensity to really benefit the brain or really maximize movement during their workday. I was curious Dr. Carter why you chose the two-minute walking session every 30 minutes and why you chose that in comparison to an eight-minute walking session every two hours. So the two-minute walking breaks the frequency of that breaks was selected based on recommendations that are published from the stench behavior and obesity expert working group and they advise taking a break from sitting every half an hour and then the duration of that walking break in the form of two minutes was based on previous research which has shown that two minute walking breaks every 20 minutes can lower our postprandial glucose and insulin concentrations and then the eight minute walking break so uh, we selected this uh, less frequent break strategy based on recommendations that if we imply interventions, they need to be feasible for individuals to complete. And a high frequency break strategy may not be uh, translatable into practice. For example, the frequent nature of physical activity breaks from sitting may not be suitable in certain workplaces, such as contact centres and customer service roles, where time on their desk is monitored and you can only take a specific break period as allocated by the employer. And in such cases, they may need to complete a longer walking break. I also wonder if an eight-minute walking break would elicit a greater physiological change, which would then potentially modulate cerebral blood flow for a longer duration after that break versus just the two-minute session. Do you have any insight on that? So we did see in our study that the increase in blood flow and walking was higher when they did the eight-minute walking breaks compared to the two-minute walking breaks. But we didn't monitor any of the responses afterwards when they sat down to see if there was a longer elevation. But overall, the eight-minute walking breaks still weren't able to prevent an overall decrease in blood flow across the course of the day. So it appears it's more the frequency rather than the duration of the walk. Sometimes we do these studies with comparing uh, four hours of sitting versus breaking up sitting. And obviously, these changes that we measure aren't always pathological the day we're measuring them. It's more that if this behavior continued over time, that we would suspect issues would come to play. So are these changes you're measuring in cerebral brain blood flow truly pathological, or are they signs of uh, physiological adaptations to being sedentary? The reductions in cerebral blood flow we observe during the prolonged sitting period. They're comparable to the age-related decline that's reported in cerebral blood flow, which is around 0.76 centimetres a second a year, because we saw a decline of around 1.4 to 3.2 centimetres a second a year. It suggests that like, a single bout of sitting may equate to two to four years of age-related decline in, in cerebral blood flow, but obviously over just in a short-term acute response. But we do know that important short-term reductions in cerebral blood flow can impair cognitive performance, so that finding has acute implications for individuals like desk workers who sit for prolonged periods each day. I think further research would be needed to assess whether our acute observations of this decrease in cerebral blood flow can contribute to the chronic reduction in brain blood flow and then have implications for certain cerebrovascular diseases. Do you think if they combine with any history of cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes that this would be enhanced or we would see a greater difference or do you think that it would really help a lot? I think we could see uh, increased 
response because in certain conditions as you've just outlined they're associated with impaired vascular function so likely occurring in the brain as well so that could lead to bigger impairments in brain blood flow so i think that would be a possibility what is cerebrovascular autoregulation? Can you explain that? Yes, it's the process that maintains constant cerebral blood flow despite changes in our blood pressure. So this prevents the brain from becoming over or under perfused during these fluctuations in blood pressure that occur. For example, when we stand up and sit down, and this otherwise could lead to sort of damage to the brain if it occurred over in the long term. Because sleep is becoming an important area of study, and obviously we all need a certain amount of sleep every night where we're sedentary. How does sleep relate to this? I'm sure that there's regulation of cerebrovascular blood flow during sleep, and we're obviously sedentary. So how does that relate to these findings? So I think with sleep, sleep's more of a restorative phase of our circadian rhythm. So during that state, despite the fact we're inactive, I think that's the part sort of restoring of our function. So I think that sedentary state is more of a reparative for the cerebrovascular physiology, but it's when we're in our waking hours and having that sedentary behaviour where that's where the decrements are occurring because we are choosing to be in that sedentary state rather than being active, but we need that sleep and we need that number of hours of being in that posture to recover and restore. And then these were relatively healthy participants. How do you expect that individuals with obesity and type 2 diabetes, for example, would they already have lower cerebral blood flow? And do you expect that light walking would have the same magnitude of an effect? They have certain, for individuals with certain conditions already, they may exhibit impaired cerebral blood flow function already. Therefore, the walking, especially maybe at the intensities that we used in our study, they may not be a big enough stimulus to enact a change because they already have this pre-existing dysfunction. So maybe in those cases that we need to implement more intense interventions during the activity breaks. So that would be, again, something that would need to be explored further. Of course, those individuals tend to have very low aerobic capacity. So even light walking can be at a relatively high percentage of their intensity. So that would be something to explore. Dr. Billinger, do you have any follow-up questions? I was curious about how you defined light work, you know, and allowing them to do different activities. I wondered whether somebody relaxing and reading a book versus maybe checking their email, responding to their boss or, you know, multitasking. Would any of those activities, did you look to see maybe whether activities performed influenced blood flow or attenuated some of the responses? So we didn't record or measure during the time they were sitting the activities they were doing. We stated they had to be a low cognitive demand. So things like accessing emails, we didn't permit. It was more, say, reading, watching something. It's very difficult to control that, though, as obviously there's very large individual differences between what one person finds cognitively demanding into another so for myself reading a text I might find that easy compared to someone else reading the same text so that that was a hard aspect to control and it would definitely be something that would you could look into in the future in terms of maybe the activities that are occurring when sitting may influence how much of a decline that occurs or, or vice versa if a decline occurs. Thank you. I, you know, I just wonder if certainly surfing on the internet or reading a book would be relaxing, but I just didn't know if answering an email sometimes when you realize how much work you have to do or you're looking at all of the things that sometimes I think that can be stressful. And I just wondered whether that was looked at or not. Moving forward, would you plan to do that differently or try to control for activity or give a prescribed? I think moving 
forward, that would be something to control in terms of maybe giving films or something for the person to watch or set text that everyone reads so it's standardised between participants. But I think it would still be very hard to say that they are causing the same cerebral blood flow demand because it would vary between individuals in terms of how they perceive that task. Well, and you highlighted a point, too, of, you know, I think the context of this paper has been real world with respect to walking. So there may be some benefit to allowing people to do light mental activity and what they perceive to see what that response is as well. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that is true. So, yeah, if we are going thinking about this in the real world, that during the day, people are going to be having fluctuations in terms of when one hour they may be doing something that's quite an easy task the next hour as you've mentioned they may have some stressful tasks going on so I think we do need to think about that during our studies as well and that if we are eventually looking at translating it into practice what are individuals that we're assessing doing in the real world so like you said there are different tasks that occur during the day so by not controlling that rigidly it's also a good rationale for that. Do you have any interest in uh, looking at how people's jobs, whether they sit for eight hours versus 10 or maybe even 16 hours a day, do you think that would impact cerebral blood flow? I think based on the duration of which they're sitting, we could see potentially a dose response and that maybe the longer that they sit, the bigger the impairment they observe in that acute period. Um, but that again would be something to explore further. But It'll be interesting to see if there is a case where after five hours it sort of plateaus and that way we can start to understand how many hours into sitting are we seeing these changes and so how frequently or how early do we need to be intervening. That is our discussion for today. We talked about the paper from Carter et al. Regular walking breaks prevent the decline in cerebral blood flow associated with prolonged sitting that was recently published in the Journal of Applied Physiology. I'd like to thank Dr. Carter, the first author on this paper, and Dr. Sedner Billinger, the expert reviewer, for taking part today.